Well, thank you. It's a joy to be back. I was with Dick Mayhew a couple times this week, and he told me of the wonderful time he had with you last week. And Dick's been a good friend for over 25 years, and he is transitioning. He's going to be the, uh, the research professor of theology at the seminary. They've, John and uh, Dick have had a book on the drawing boards since 1998. Neither one of them could fi- finish it because of their, of their work, and so when Dick said, I'm going to retire June 30th, 2015, John said to me one day, hey, let's, let's have him finish that theology book. So that's what he's going to be doing. So well, that's going to be a great book, great book, uh, somewhere between 500 and 10,000 pages. Now, I, no, I don't know, but it's, uh, it'll be a great, great book. So, yeah, you need to pray for Dick as he launches into that deal. Well, I was here over a year ago, and when Scott called me and asked me to come back, I said, Scott, I was just there. And he said, no, I know, I know. I said, I want you to come back. I want you to, to review what you did with the folks and add a few new things. And I said, okay, okay, I'll do that. I graduated from high school in uh, 1960, probably said a little bit of this when I was here before. And uh, my dad was a superintendent back in those days of what is known as the largest die-casting plant in the world in Toledo. They had two plants in Toledo, two in Grand Rapids, Michigan, one in Potsdam, Pennsylvania, and one in Batavia, New York. He was the superintendent of one of the plants in in Toledo, about 6,000 employees, pretty good-sized plant. Um, And he had a heart attack my senior year, May of my senior year, and, and so he had to retire with his disability. So I... I didn't know what I was going to do. The company thought I wouldn't be able to go to college because of that, and so they offered me a job in purchasing in the company. And so I started that summer of 1960 in purchasing. And in 1962, they gave me the responsibility of the Lincoln Continental and the Ford Thunderbird, the rear windows. And in 1964, they gave me the Ford Mustang. My job was to buy the component parts for that little window in the back seat for the Mustang and and ship up to the River Rouge plant in Detroit to be put into the cars. Little trivia: There were they, there were there were sixteen different companies. There were eighteen component parts in that little vent window. Just that little deal. Sixteen different companies it took to make those parts. And I tell people regularly, if it took sixteen companies to make that little window. How many companies does it take to build a car? Thousands. How many employees involved? Millions. To give you an idea of that die casting plant, nineteen forty-two, when the Japanese I guess in 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. My dad was a superintendent. And he went down to register in the draft and uh, volunteer at the time, and, and they wouldn't let him enter the Army because he was a superintendent of this plant. Give you a little idea. The largest die-casting plant in the world. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, it took them three weeks Three weeks to convert those plants to war production. Three weeks. The plant he was the superintendent of had the responsibility of making mortar shells and hand grenades. He worked the next three years, seven days a week, making those war materials for the Air Force and the Army and the Navy. And you can understand why why. Germany and Japan didn't have a chance. You know, when they, when they opened up that Pandora's box, when they bombed Pearl Harbor, that just was the beginning of the end because they couldn't c- compare it, com- compete with our armaments down in that, in that company. For those of you who can remember back, that's where the term Rosie the Riveter was created. 
there were not many women working in industry back in World War II. And because all the guys going to war, uh, a lot of the women had to fill those rows. My mother went to work at that plant in Toledo. And they called those women the Rosies of Riveter or the Rosie of Riveters, whatever you want to call them. And that's how all that, all, all that began. And now you fast forward to when I graduated from high school and I'm working at that plant. And I uh, experienced my first recession fall of 1960. Uh, that September was the first recession that I experienced. Gross domestic product is the measure of all goods and services in this culture. You go down to buy a cup of coffee, that's gross domestic product. You buy a tank of gas, gross domestic product. Buy a car, gross domestic product. They measure that quarter by quarter. Two consecutive quarters of decline is called a recession. There's been six of them since I went to work. This last one we've experienced is the most serious of my lifetime. Not the Great Depression, but a very, very serious recession. Capitalism, this is the greatest story ever told. Free market, that's what we are. That's why we're the most successful country in the history of the world. We're the most prosperous people living in the most prosperous country in the history of the world because we're so generous. We're so generous. When there's a worldwide catastrophe, who is the first to respond the quickest and with the mostest? It's America. It's America. Capitalism, free enterprise, needs recessions once in a while to stay healthy. Our economy overheats at times. Detroit builds too many cars. Contractors build too many houses, too many shopping centers. And that needs to cool off. And so when that cools off, that's called a recession. You just want it short and shallow, not long and deep. The average length of recession in this country has been 12 months. That's been the history of it. This last one has been well over 50 months, and I still think we're in recession. Now, you notice this week they advertised that the unemployment rate's down to 5.9%. One question I would love to ask them, if unemployment is 5.9%, how come we have 46 million people on food stamps? I would, I would love to hear the answer to that question. Our unemployment's not 5.9%. Our unemployment is probably mid-teens. When I was in college, they talked in terms of millions of dollars of debt. It wasn't long they talked in terms of billions of dollars of debt. Today they talk in terms of trillions of dollars of debt, as you well know. It's a one followed by 12 zeros. It's hard to get your arms around a number like that. But we're $17.6 trillion in debt as a country. Let me give you an idea what that's all about. Take a stack of 100 $100 bills. How much money is a trillion dollars? Let me show you. Take a stack of 100 $100 bills. That's $10,000. Take 100 stacks. That's a million dollars. You could put that in a shopping bag. 100 million in the shape of a cube, three by three by three, would fit on an industrial pallet. One billion would fit on 10 industrial pallets. One trillion would fit on 10,000 pallets and would fit in an average size warehouse. We, we are 17.6 warehouses in debt in this country. 
Another way to measure it. A million seconds ago was 12 days. A billion seconds ago was 32 years. A trillion seconds ago was 32,000 years. That's a trillion. That's a trillion dollars. $17.6 trillion in debt. $123 trillion when you throw in all the entitlements that are unfunded. So we're facing some challenges in this country. We're facing some economic tests in this country. Where is it leading? Nobody knows. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet, but I do work for a nonprofit. How's that? Nobody knows. We're plowing new ground. But the challenges are real, and they're going to continue to get real. And they're estimated by the time that this administration leaves office, we'll be over $20 trillion in debt as a country. Some economists feel that that may be the point of no return, whatever that means. Nobody knows for sure. But you know what? I refuse to worry about that. I refuse to get overly concerned about that. My God is in control. My God is sovereign. And my God has a purpose in everything that happens. Do we deserve the judgment of God? Do we deserve the wrath of God? Sure. We have spat in his face since 1973, Roe v. Wade. We have murdered millions of babies. We, we now are having every state will eventually approve same-sex marriages. It's just a matter of time. It will happen. Homosexuality. We deserve the judgment of God. And if God decided to bring America to its knees, the quickest way he could do it is economically. And it could happen overnight. So we're facing challenges. I spoke to the college kids not long ago, and I, and I, and I told those kids, you're walking into a very interesting economy when you graduate. Are there jobs out there? Yeah, there are some. Uh, but you're, you're, you're going to see this country plowing new ground like it's never plowed before. But the opportunity to serve Christ is still there. This culture, regardless of the direction it, has, it, ha it heads, needs the gospel more than ever before in my lifetime. So the challenges are real. The challenges are there. Am I going to worry about it? No. No. I refuse to go there because I know God is sovereign. When you looked at the biblical principle of worrying, it says, to, it says a worry is to divide, to tear, to rip apart to pull in opposite directions. So to be anxious, according to scriptures, to be torn apart by circumstances. On the other hand, concern is a legitimate emotion. Should we be concerned? Sure, we should be concerned. We live in this culture. It's helping God's people focus on real problems and providing enough spiritual energy to respond with godly solutions. That's Psalm twenty-five, twenty-two. So we have a responsibility as believers uh, to be salt and light in a very challenging culture. We're seeing things unfold that we wouldn't have dreamt about unfolding 20 years ago, 10 years ago. The problem with worrying accomplishes absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Worrying is not good for you, number two. It's not only destructive, but can make you physically sick. Worrying is the opposite of trusting God. Worry replaced by prayer equals trust. Worrying puts your focus into the wrong direction. Worrying about your longevity, God's in control of that too. 
You can't add one minute to your lifespan. You can't add one inch to your height. Not long ago, researchers did a study. Listen to this one. They studied 500 people over 100 years of age. The oldest was 112. They want to know, what was their secret? What is your secret to longevity? Here's what they discovered. Only 2% were vegetarians. Only 10% exercised. 500 people over 100 years of age. 27% were chain smokers. 35% were obese. (laughs) The conclusion? It was genetics, they said. It wasn't genetics. It was the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. God's in control. God's in control of everything. God has a purpose for everything. Folks, I sang in several quartets over the years. One of my favorite numbers was, this world is not my home. Remember that? I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We're just passing through. We're not residents here. We're not permanent residents here. We're just traveling through. Heaven is our home. And so to get too caught up in what's going on in this culture is a waste of time. Worrying about it contradicts Scripture. What are we to do? How are we to live? The question that God's people need to be asking themselves, understanding that we're going to get hit with inflation, we're going to get hit with tax increases, we've got $2 trillion of funny money running through our system. Money that was created by the printing, by the printing presses that add absolutely nothing to stimulus. Besides the $2 trillion, you've got another $15.6 trillion. It's got to be paid back. So we're going to get hit with increased taxes. You've seen it at the higher brackets here in California. We're going to get hit with inflation. The old economic, I taught economics at the College level for several years. We've got too much money chasing too few goods. That creates inflation. So we're going to get hit with inflation. We're going to get hit with tax increases, which means our discretionary income is going to begin to shrink a bit. Average American pays about 25% in income taxes. Some pay more. 51% of this culture pay no taxes, zero taxes. So it averages out out that average American pays about 25% in federal income taxes, which means about 75% of our income is for discretionary use. If my discretionary income is going to begin to shrink a bit, the question that God's people need to be asking How am I going to continue to be able to support my families, my church, missionaries, Christian schools like the Master's College, the Master's Seminary, K-12 through Christian schools? I'll tell you how. We need to get back to the principles of stewardship, how we live, how we make choices, how we make decisions. And God's Word covers it well. There are 2,350 verses in the Word of God about money and material possessions. 2,350. Don't get nervous. We're not going to look at all 2,350. But we are going to learn at the principle of generosity is discussed in the Word of God. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Oh, let's back up to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Let's do that first. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, your eye is clear or good. Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or cloudy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. They either hate the one and love the other, or else will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. You cannot serve God in treasures. You cannot serve God in riches. You can summarize these six verses like this. You can look at verses 19 and 20 and say earthly treasures corrupt. If money controls your life, it will probably eventually corrupt your life. Money does that. You can look at verses 22 and 23, and you can say yearning for earthly treasures will cause you to lose your spiritual vision. You could look at verse 24, and you can say money can even draw you away from serving Jesus Christ. So if you allow yourself to buy into the culture of our day, and money begins to control your life, it's a very materialistic culture that we live in, it will eventually probably corrupt your life. The next step, you'll lose what vision God has given you to serve him with. The end result you could be pulled away from any interest in serving Jesus Christ. When you look at verses 19 and 20, it talks about laying up treasures on earth versus laying up treasures in heaven. There's a difference. Treasures on earth are temporary. Treasures in heaven are eternal. Treasures on earth are the clothes on our back, the cars we drive, the homes we live in, the pension plans we accumulate. None of that has any redeeming value whatsoever. People, we came into this world with nothing, but we're going to leave it with nothing. Treasures in heaven, however, are eternal. So the question you could be asking yourself is, what are treasures in heaven? Treasures in heaven are ultimately people. Treasures in heaven are ultimately people. Nothing will follow us to heaven except people. Nothing will precede us to heaven except people. So I could say to you, Christians should buy people for heaven. How do we do that? By investing our lives and our resources in the Lord's work. We don't need to get caught up in this culture. We, we don't need to be worried about what's coming or what's happening. We're to be salt and light in this culture. That's why we're here. That's the purpose. This is just a temporary residence for us. comes back to the heart. always comes back to the heart. Verses 22 and 23 talks about the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is clear, your body's full of light. If your eye is cloudy, your body's full of darkness. What's he talking about there? We all have two eyes. It's how we understand the things about us. We enjoy God's beautiful creation by and large through our eyesight. We also have a spiritualized our heart. If through our spiritualized heart that God's truth comes to us, how do we come to grips with the mysteries in the word of God? Things like eternal life. Things about uh, God never had a beginning. Uh, think about creation. God created it all. You know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken, full grown, right? God said chicken, and there was a chicken. It's no secret. It's no mystery. God's in control. God is in charge. And, we all, you know, we also have a spiritual eye. It's our heart. Our heart is the very eye of our soul. It's through our spiritual eye, our heart, that God's truth comes to us. How do we come to grips with the mysteries in the word of God? God reveals it to us through his word. We read his word, we meditate upon his word, we, we memorize his word. Our passion is to mirror the word of God to the culture. That's a believer with a clear eye. God reveals his truth through our spiritual eye, our heart. And if our spiritual eye, our heart is cloudy, it may be because we're materialistic. It may be because money controls our life. 
But if our spiritual eye, our heart is clear, that means we have a hunger for the things of God. We have a passion to serving with. The culture doesn't dictate our personality or what's important to us. We don't get caught up in all that. We're here to glorify Jesus Christ in everything that we do. Verse 24 talks about divided loyalties. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't have a clear eye and a cloudy eye. You can't have one foot on earth and you're the other foot in heaven. It compartmentalizes your life. Don't ever walk up to me and say, hey, Jim, I'm faithful to my church. I'm faithful to my devotions. I love Jesus Christ. I'm trying to model his word. I'm out of control financially, but I'm okay. No, you're not. You just compounded your life. You're in conflict. Our life is a package. It works together to serve Jesus Christ. You can't compartmentalize your life. It all works together. That comes back to Matthew 6.21, which is the key verse here. But where you put your treasures, where your heart is. Where we put our money is where our heart is. How we handle our money is an outward manifestation of what's really going on in our heart and life. Let me show you God's financial plan. Take your Bibles and flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. God's financial plan. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. And then flip forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. I call this God's financial plan. I think these are the best texts on stewardship in the Word of God. There's a lot of texts, but I, I love these. these are, I think these are some of the best. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, God's financial plan. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside, storing up as he may prosper. Be a consistent giver to the Lord's work as God has prospered you. Well, you say I'm not prosperous. Everybody in this auditorium is prosperous. You live in America, you're prosperous. We enjoy things in this country that the rest of the people in the world only dream about. We have the best health care. We have the best safety system. We have fire departments. We have police departments. I wake up in the morning, turn on the weather channel. I know what to wear for the next week. I have a billion cable channels, right? Well, maybe a million. We have, we have, issue, we have the greatest culture in the history of the world. We're prosperous. Yes, some of it's relative. Some more prosperous than others. But we are all prosperous. Be a consistent giver to God's work as he prospers you. Now flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Now watch this text. But this I say, he who sows sparingly or a little bit will also reap sparingly or a little bit. He who sows bountifully or a whole lot will also reap bountifully or a whole lot. So each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now, when you read these three verses, the question you could ask is, what is the blessing or what is the harvest? You reap what you sow. There are two benefits that accrues to a believer who is a generous giver to the Lord's work. The first benefit is found there in verse 7. It's that little phrase, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 7 starts out, so that each one gives he purposes in his own heart. Giving is always voluntary. We are free to give from a willing heart. It's not casual giving. It should be purposeful giving. 
We give with no reluctance. It's not what we have to do. There's no pressure. We give because it's in our heart. Tithing can be legalistic if you're not careful. If you come to church and give because you sense you have to give, there's a possibility you could be giving grudgingly. If you ever find yourself giving grudgingly to the Lord's work, you might just as well stick it back in your pocket because you're dishonoring God. That's wrong heart. You know that little phrase, for God loves a cheerful giver, is not said anywhere else in Scripture? It's only said right here. We know that God loves all people. We know that God loves, people, loves us as his children in a very unique way. When you are a cheerful giver to his work, the Greek word is hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. We are very unique in his eyes because we love him. We demonstrate it by our love for him, our, our giving for him, the way we live our life for him. All works together to serve Christ. There's a second benefit. Whom God loves, he lavishes. Whom God loves, he lavishes. Now, to be careful, it's not health, wealth, prosperity. You see counterfeited on television today. Those are counterfeits. Those are frauds. They stand up in front of their audience and they say, send me your seed money and you'll be healed. Sometimes they say, send me your seed money and, and your debts will go away. So people send them their seed money. True believers are not caught up by the garbage and by the frauds. Then they send them their seed money and they're not healed or their debts don't go away. And who do they blame for that? They blame God for that. The most heinous of crimes. Some of the most heinous of crimes. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the abounding grace of God. Verse 6 says you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Verse 7 says you give cheerfully. Verse 8 says God will pour out abundant grace to you. Give, God gives back all grace. It comes back to the heart. It comes back to the motive. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 says there is one who scatters yet increases all the more. Then there is one who withholds what is just due but results only in more want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. If you're generous, God will lie to, to, to be generous. If you're generous, you'll receive generosity. That's what the Bible teaches. Three things happen to a person who is generous. Number one, it breaks the chain of selfishness in their life. Generous people are not stingy people. It'll humble you. We've come through some pretty tough times in this country, and it's not over yet. And what a wonderful privilege to come along someone that you know has lost their job or struggling financially and a health issue maybe and put your arm around them and say, you know what, I'm not just going to pray for you. I'm going to come alongside you materially. I'm going to help you make that utility payment. I'm going to help you put those groceries on your table so you can feed your family. That's, that's humbling to be able to do that. It, it also places a loose grip on your possessions because you know by the word of God, he's just loaned it to us. We don't own it. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The silver and gold is his. He's just loaned it to us, to serving with and to enjoy. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying it. That's God's intention for his elect. That's his intention. Now let's talk about the generous life for a minute. There's a difference between a tither and one who is generous. Let me contrast them for you. A tither is self-focused. One who is generous is God-focused. A tither is limited. He gives 10%. Generosity is limitless. Gives as God prospers him. A tither, it's momentary thing. Generous, generosity is committed. I'm committed. Tithing is obligatory. 
I have to do it. Generosity is voluntary. I want to do it. Tithing, I have to. Generosity says I want to. A tither says I'm the owner. One who is generous says I'm the manager. I don't own it. I'm just the manager of it. It belongs to God. If the money you oversees is not yours but God's, how does that change our outlook on money? Wow. That's thought-provoking. That's challenging. If I know by the grace of God and by his word, I don't own it. I just manage it. How does that change my outlook towards it? Wow, that's, that's challenging. What's the, most, what's the largest obstacle to people? It's a, it's a God-centered life. Many of them don't have a God-centered life. It's self-centered. It's self-focused. I want what I want. I want it now. I'm even willing to go into debt to get what I want now. And money controls their life. Pretty sad. Comes back to the heart. Always comes back to the heart. If I'm generous, it's because I'm content. Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This issue of, of biblical contentment. If I'm generous, it's because I'm content. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The biblical definition of contentment is synonymous with obedience. Biblical contentment is a preoccupation with the well-being of others. I'm generous. Why am I generous? Because I'm content. Stewardship starts with a generous attitude. Stewardship starts with a generous heart. I'm in my heart is in control. I want to respond to the word of God in my life and how I make decisions and how I make choices. And if I'm generous, it's because I'm content. I'm content with the circumstances that God has placed me in. I'm content when I see our country going through the chaos that it's going through. And it it is. I'm content because I know God is in control. I'm not going to worry about that because I know God is in control. I'm content with that. Sometimes I don't like my circumstances, but I'm content that God knows all about it. He has a purpose when I lose my health. I'm content with that because I know God is in control. One of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture is Philippians 4.13. You see that verse on eyeshadow of professional athletes. You see that on placards. I saw it yesterday in a football stadium at Rutgers. I watched Michigan lose again to Rutgers. It's beginning a really big. I'm a Michigan fan. Dick Mayhew's an Ohio State fan. Uh, he doesn't know, Dick Mayhew doesn't know a football from a soccer ball, but we have a lot of fun with it. Now, I saw it on a placard, Philippians 4.13. The world looks at it as a success verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can, how I can be successful, how I can reach my goals, how I can make the team. That's not a success verse. That's a contentment verse. Philippians 4.13 is, how do I respond when I don't reach my goals? How do I respond when I lose my job? How do I respond when I lose my health? How do I I respond when my paycheck gets lower and lower? That's that's Philippians 4.13. It's a contentment verse. Very, very misunderstood in this culture. Verse 7, if we brought nothing into this world, it's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with this, we shall be content. Now look at verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 6. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a, and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. This kind of a person in verse 9 is compulsive. They're greedy. Money controls their life. They'll probably eventually lose their integrity. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money. It's the love of it. For some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. If I'm generous, I'm content. If I'm generous, I'm content. I'm a person of integrity. Flip back to Proverbs chapter 6. This issue of biblical integrity. Deceitfulness. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, that's deceit. Lying tongue, that's deceit. Hands that shed innocent blood. How about hands that destroy innocent reputations? A heart that deviseth wicked schemes? People, if money controls your life, you're a schemer. Money controls your life, you're a schemer. And God hates that form of behavior. Feet that are swift and running to evil or mischief, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Look at chapter 16, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness and vast revenues without justice. One who has vast revenues without righteousness is a rule breaker. Ever been the rules? Ever been the rules on your income tax returns? You professional people, ever been the rules on your expense accounts? Ever take a discount you're not entitled to? We don't do that. We're people of integrity. Flip over to chapter 20, verse 7. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Mom and dad, you want to raise children of integrity? Grandma and grandpa, you want to raise children, grandchildren of integrity? Be people of integrity. Be models of integrity. We do what is right. But we're not for sale. I, one of the biggest responsibilities I feel is with my grandkids. I got eight of them. They're always asking questions, and a lot, it comes, a lot of it comes down to good old-fashioned integrity. What, Papa, what do we do here? What do we do there? We do what is right. We always do what is right. I'm generous. I'm content. Of course, I'm a person of integrity. I want to do what is right. I want to do what is right. Now, let's put it to work. Let's put it to work. A few minutes we have left. Let's put it to work. You're generous, you're content, person of integrity. Now I want to do what's right. I want to live it. Let's live it. Let me give you some practical tips. Have a budget. Oh, there he goes again, talking about budgeting. Yeah, you want to make, you, you want to make financial progress? Have a budget. Church wants to make financial progress? Have a budget. Business wants to make financial progress? Have a budget. Number two, get out of debt. Get out of debt. Where is this economy headed? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. In a practical sense, you want to get heads up? Get out of debt. Get out of debt. Get out of installment debt particularly. I get the question all the time, the kids at the college. Should I borrow money to... Should I borrow money to finish my graduate, to, to graduate with? Should I borrow money to get my bachelor's degree? Sure. Nothing wrong with that. That's an investment in your future. When you get out of school, pay it off. Pay it off. Get rid of it. 
I told the co-eds in chapel, I said, you know, guys, you fall in love with one of these gals? Think you're going to marry her? Get her a job. Take all the income that she earns in that job and pay off her school debt, pay off your school debt. The goal is to get rid of the debt. Before you're married, you get rid of the debt. If you break up, you're debt free. <laughs> the, the guys applauded, the girls didn't. <laughs> Number three, control credit card use. Control credit card use. Don't let credit cards control your life. They're great tools for terrible masters. For most people in this country, they're terrible masters. Over 60% of the people in this country roll their credit card debt from month to month. Do you know what the average monthly income is to the credit card industry? Interest only? It's 300, around $360 million a month of interest to the credit card industry. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. We've gone from 670 billion charges on credit cards to 1.3 trillion in 11 years. This last year, there was 1.3 trillion dollars charged on credit cards. 800 billion of that's at interest. 800 billion dollars is at interest today in credit card debt. That means beyond the grace period. 800 billion. Tip number four, are you over 50 with little retirement set aside? Get your head out of the sand. We say, I'm never going to retire. I understand retirement's not in the Bible. The goal of a believer should be to come financially independent so I can donate my time to serve the Lord. I can donate my time to the church. I can donate my time to the mission field. That should be the goal of a believer. Number five, do you have an up-to-date will and living trust? We did this last time I was here. Have a living trust. People, you live in California. You don't want your estate going through the probate process in California. My wife and I decided this 20-some years ago. We have a living trust, a Rickard family trust. We then funded the trust with our deeded entitled assets. We don't own our home down in New Hall anymore. The living trust owns the home. The beneficiary of my life insurance was not my wife. It was the living trust. If I die, she inherits the money, goes into her checking account, and she dies, you're back to probate. If the living trust inherits the $500,000 life insurance policy, it's owned by the trust. My wife is a survivor trustee. I'm in heaven. She's still the trustee of the trust. She has access to that money. Spend it any way she wants, but it's controlled by the trust. There's no probate. A living trust circumvents the probate process. It's like this. When you pass into eternity with a will, you pass the ownership of your assets to your heirs under probate law. When you have a living trust and you die, your assets are in the trust, you pass the ownership of your assets to your heirs under contract law. My wife and I have a living, have a living trust honored by all 50 states in this country. All 50 states. I die, my wife's survivor trustee. I die, she dies, my son's successor trustee. Nothing changes. As long as my wife and I are alive, we can change the trust. When the second death occurs, the trust is in concrete. My son cannot change the trust. He only carries out our wishes in the trust. That's a major area of estate planning. That's stewardship. Number six, be afraid of credit cards. Respect them. Respect them. They're either great tools or terrible masters. Number seven. Learn to procrastinate on discretionary purchases. Listen, if a decision's right today, it'll be right tomorrow. If a decision's right today, it'll be right next week or next month. Don't be rushed into 
some decision you're not prepared to make. If you feel uncomfortable, it could be your conscience working over time, whatever, walk away from it. Walk away from it. If it's right today, it's right tomorrow. Salesmen go to seminars to learn how to sell and play on our emotions. We don't have that luxury to go to seminars to learn how to resist all that. They provide a valuable service, but they're there to sell. They're not the stewards of our resources. We are. Number eight, buy a home, not a castle. Number nine, have an emergency fund and plan ahead for special events. <coughs> My wife and I had a financial plan. We were engaged. Put a financial plan together for our marriage. Talk about, talked about all the issues that we, we felt would, would affect our marriage financially. We wrote it all out, called our financial plan. We've lived that financial plan for 51 years. Had a wonderful marriage. I've, have, I've had a one, I'm having a wonderful marriage. I think I'm walking home. <laughs> Yeah, we both know Jesus Christ, but we've lived the basic principles of stewardship. That's it. That's it. We, we got married. One of our financial plan principles was 50% of what we got in cash wedding gifts was going to seed our emergency fund. We got about $1,000 in cash wedding gifts, 1963. It's a lot of money in 1963. It's a lot of money today. We took 500 of it, seeded our emergency fund. That started our emergency fund as a married couple. Our goal was to get it eventually up to $5,000, which we were able to do over the next few years. We took the other $500, spent it on our honeymoon. Now, a $500 honeymoon was a nice honeymoon in 1963. Today, it wouldn't get you out of Kingsburg, at least not very far. Summary of all this comes down to stewardship. It starts with generosity. Be generous. Number two, take care of the needs of your family. Number three, protect your family from a catastrophic occurrence, premature death, premature disability. Number four, plan for the future. Have a retirement plan, have an estate plan, a will or a trust. Now listen to me. Credit cards control your life. You can't do any of those. If credit cards control your life, you're not a giver. You can't be. You've got credit card debt. You're not taking care of the needs of your family like you should. You've got those credit card payments. You're probably not protecting your family from a catastrophic occurrence. You can't afford premiums. Probably don't have a will or a trust. Probably don't participate in a retirement plan because credit cards control your life. Comes back to the heart. Always comes back to the heart. Where's your heart this morning? What's really important to you? We're facing some challenges, folks. This country is facing some real challenges. Also, great opportunities, especially for believers. We have what the world needs. It's called the gospel. What a privileged people we are. Take your Bibles. Let me conclude. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. Luke chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. This says it all. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. That's a character issue. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous money or mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? 
If, you've not, if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? If you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who in the world could trust you with the welfare of those that Jesus Christ loves? That's buying people for heaven. That's what that's talking about. If he can't trust you with money, how in the world could he trust us with the lives of people, with their souls? That's the eternal issue. Money's not eternal. It's temporary. It goes away. Nothing left. It's wood, hay, and stubble. Where's your heart? Generosity, contentment, and integrity. Those are the three cornerstone principles for stewardship. The most important is generosity. Why? That starts the whole process. If my passion is to be generous, everything flows from there. Everything flows from there because I'm dealing with the right heart. I want to do what God would have me do. I want to do what I want to do, which I trust would be what God would have me do because I'm dealing with the right heart. Where's your heart this morning? What's really important to you? Challenging days, but great opportunities. And boy, what a place to be right here with a great Bible teacher. You're blessed. You're really blessed.